Well, open your Bibles to John chapter 16, and today we will actually finish John chapter 16 in the section on the farewell discourse, which of course will prepare us for the high priestly prayer that Jesus begins to pray and takes up the entirety of chapter 17. So by way of context of what we've already looked at, as we've looked at this transition, this transformation from sorrow to joy that began earlier in chapter 16, Jesus has made a pronouncement in verse 16 where he says again that I am leaving and they cannot go, but they will see him go. And the likely application of this is that Jesus is speaking of the resurrection. He is going to die in just a few short hours on Friday early evening, and then he will be raised on Sunday. And so he is leaving, but they will see him again, and the implication is that it will be fairly quick. That also does have some connection to them seeing him during the period where Jesus appeared over 40 days after his resurrection and his appearances. But it also speaks forward of the day of Pentecost when Jesus himself would present himself to the disciples in the person of the Holy Spirit. So there is a dual application, and we'll see this dual application repeated in our passage of Scripture today where there is a reference to what takes place at the Pentecost. So Jesus makes his pronouncement again that he is leaving, and the disciples are very puzzled by this proclamation that Jesus has given to them. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? And that is recorded in verses 17 and 18 where Jesus says, I am leaving and you will see me again. So they have a lot of questions. Jesus can see the confusion in their faces. He knows that there's great concern about what is going to happen in their minds. And he wants to provide some clarification for them. And so it says in verse 19 that Jesus knew that they wished to question him. So in this conversation about moving from sorrow to joy and Jesus is leaving, the disciples have a lot of questions. And so Jesus gives to them a very helpful parable in verse 20. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. So Jesus again repeats to them that there is going to be great sorrow in their lives. They will weep and they will lament. At the beginning of this farewell discourse, when Jesus told them that he was going to leave, their hearts were filled with sorrow. And in a sense, Jesus is expanding upon that sorrow by telling them and preparing them for what's going to happen to them after he departs when they are carrying out their apostolic ministry in the world. So they will have great sorrow in their lives. At Jesus' death on the cross, the world will be rejoicing. And that's one of the great contrasts that we see here that we need to be mindful of, is that when the hearts of God's people are broken, the world is going to rejoice. There is this battle that is being waged around us. It will never, ever end. And so the world rejoices at the death of Christ. But Jesus says here that your grief will be turned to joy. 
in the immediacy of the cross, the disciples will see Jesus after his resurrection. Death was not permanent. It was but a shadow. But then also, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out amongst the believing community, the revelation will begin to set into their minds and in their hearts. God will give to them understanding that they have never had before. And this will be the beginning of this transformation of sorrow into joy. So Jesus gives them this example as a parable, the parable of childbirth. Every woman who has given birth knows the pain and the discomfort and the grief that comes from having given birth to a child. But they also know the great joy that overwhelms them once that little life comes into the world and the pain and discomfort that they faced seems to melt away as they look into the eyes of their child for the very first time. Well, this takes us into our new section of Scripture. We're going to be looking at verses 23 through 33 as we conclude on this transformation from sorrow to joy. Beginning in verse 23, Jesus says, In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I have come forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father... And I have come into the world, I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Verse 29, his disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and you have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come. For you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So as we continue in our outline from last time, we come to number four. And these are going to be the promises that Jesus gives to his disciples as he is talking about this transformation from sorrow into joy. Verse 23a, In that day you will not question me about anything. So the question comes that day. What does that day mean? Well, more than likely, that day is the day of Pentecost. Here, the usage of the word day refers to a new era. The physical ministry of Jesus is about to conclude In just a couple of hours, he will be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the subsequent hours, he will be tried and then crucified. And his physical ministry is going to come to an end. The Holy Spirit will be poured out for the believing community on the day of Pentecost. And when that takes place, the Holy Spirit will indwell all believers. When this happens, this is going to end, this is going to usher in a new era for the disciples, where they had been completely dependent upon the physical presence of Jesus. 
In this new era, the Holy Spirit will indwell them and they will no longer be dependent upon the physical presence of Jesus. He says, you won't question me about anything. Now, the usage of the word to question here means to seek clarification. It was very common for Jesus to teach amongst the crowds in the public and parables and then he would privately explain these things to his disciples. He would often speak in veiled truth to the unbelievers that were around him and they wouldn't understand what he meant by that because Jesus really didn't want them to understand. They wanted he wanted for them to seek clarification. So as the disciples walked with Jesus and heard him teach, they would often seek greater clarification about the things that Jesus has said. Now even now, there is so much that the disciples don't understand. They don't understand a lot of what Jesus has been saying in the discourse. There's a lot about what Jesus has already said and about what Jesus has done in his earthly ministry that they don't understand. On top of that, they really don't understand why he has to leave. They are likely still thinking about a literal physical kingdom, and they certainly aren't going to understand why Jesus had to go to the cross. But a future day, this new era, when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes, when he leads them into truth and explains everything to them, then they will understand. They won't need to question Jesus of anything because the Holy Spirit is going to explain it all to them. They were completely dependent upon Jesus to answer all of their questions. But when Jesus exits from this world and the Holy Spirit comes, they won't need to question Jesus because they will have the Holy Spirit. He won't be there physically He will have ascended and gone back into heaven, so he won't need to be there to answer their questions. He won't be there to answer their questions. They will instead turn to the Helper who indwells them that the Father will send to them on the day of Pentecost. As a reminder of what Jesus has said in this discourse, when the Helper comes, he will lead them into all truth, meaning He will instruct them theologically. He will answer all of the unanswered questions. He will fill in all the blanks. He will remind them of everything that Jesus has said. And He will explain to them the meaning of everything that Jesus has said. They would become theologians through the indwelling presence and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit so that what they would eventually write and the things that they would teach would be understood as the inerrant, eternal Word of God. They would explain how Jesus fulfilled everything that was written in the Old Testament. As an example of this, Peter, who was simply a bold and brash fisherman, would become one of the most schooled preachers of the day. Paul would excel because he was trained as a Pharisee, but each of the disciples who were unschooled men in theology, who were not disciples of any famous rabbi, would be able to explain how Jesus specifically and completely fulfilled 
everything in the Old Testament. This would be the work that the Holy Spirit would complete in them, and this is why they would not need to ask Jesus anything, because the Holy Spirit would explain it all to them. Now, this is a setup in our verses for one of the four promises that Jesus is going to make. Beginning in verse 23b, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Now, this is the beginning of what Jesus is going to build upon. And he says, as a part of the first promise, the Father will provide. Now, the word to ask here is to make a request. There's a subtlety here that is sometimes missed in this verse as we look at it in the English language. Originally, Jesus said, you will not need to question me about anything. You will not need to seek clarification from me. But here he says, you will not need to ask me for anything. You will ask the Father. So throughout Jesus' ministry... They not only questioned him, seeking clarification from the things that he taught, but they also made requests of him. In this new era, this new day that is coming, when Jesus isn't physically present, they will ask the Father directly and he will provide. They will not need to ask Jesus for anything. One, he isn't there Two, they have the Holy Spirit to provide the clarification. And three, Jesus is directing them to ask of the Father directly. He says, if we ask of the Father in my name, then the Father will provide. So again, we look at the question, what does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? We've already looked at this. It's already been addressed. It means to ask on behalf of Christ. It is to ask For his sake, it is to ask for things that are consistent with his nature and his purposes. And it is most specifically applied to the apostolic ministry that these individuals were going to have where there would be great need in their lives as they sought to fulfill God's purposes in their lives. And so Jesus is saying, if you ask of the Father in my name, he will provide it. Why? Because the Father wants you to have it. This most specifically relates to spiritual accomplishments. It is spiritual character. It is spiritual fruit. It is the kind of things that these individuals are going to need in order to do the things that God has called them to do. So if you ask of the Father in my name, He will provide it for you. Secondly, the promise Jesus makes here is that our joy will be full. Now he continues in this line of thinking about asking of the Father. Verse 24, Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Now, what isn't supplied in this verse is implied. Up to now they have not asked the Father for anything in Jesus' name. They have asked the Father directly. Now that is not specifically stated in the verse, but that is what Jesus is implying. They have not asked the Father in Jesus' name. They have asked Jesus Himself. So there is this transition that Jesus is instructing them in that they no longer, they no longer need to ask Him, but they will ask the Father in His name. In this new era, this era that is ushered in after the day of Pentecost, 
everything changes. They will ask the Father directly in Jesus' name. And Jesus says that what, that what they ask for in His name, for His sake, for His glory, in their service to Him, the Father will gladly provide so that their joy will be made full. It is God's pleasure to bring joy to our lives by providing the spiritual qualities that we desire and we seek after. It would be a great tragedy in the lives of Christians to seek from the Father these things that they desire in order to love Him and serve Him and obey Him, and the Father was unwilling to provide. Jesus is enforcing the fact that everything that they're going to need in the execution of their apostolic ministry, everything that they're going to need in their lives to live it out for Christ, the Father will gladly provide for them. Now, if we remember that Jesus is primarily preparing them for not only His departure, but for their apostolic ministry, this makes a lot of sense. So, as we look at what Jesus has talked about in this discourse, this challenge to love Him and obey Him, to remain faithful to Him, to stay in His Word, to love one another as He has loved them, to bear fruit in the kingdom. There's a lot that they're going to have to ask for, and there is a lot that the Father is going to be joyfully providing to him, to them. It is Father, the Father's desire that we experience the fullness of joy even in the times of great sorrow. So as a way of tempering the sorrow that they feel as Jesus continues to talk about His imminent departure, He is telling them that the Father will provide everything that they need, everything that they ask for in Jesus' name, and that is designed to bring them joy. Now the third promise that Jesus makes here is this. It's a promise of greater understanding. Verse 25, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. Now this, this verse explains the questioning of Him that was referenced initially in verse 23. Now, figurative language here means veiled sayings. It is things that Jesus would have said where the meaning is not immediately clear, but it will become clear later on. Now, these things refers to the entirety of the farewell discourse, not just what Jesus has said, but it also applies to the entirety of Jesus' ministry and all of the teaching that they have heard. They have heard Him speak many, many things in parable and in veiled saying, what would be called enigmatic or mysterious sayings. And there is a day that is coming when they will no longer hear him speak in figurative language as he comes to them in the form of and in the presence of the Holy Spirit, he will speak very plainly to them. This truth that was hidden from unbelievers and those who did not truly seek after him the meaning of which was often lost on the disciples, these things, the Spirit will speak very plainly to them in this new era that is coming. It is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that will enable the disciples to fully understand in its entirety 
very plainly and very clearly what Jesus has been saying to them. Now, they wouldn't understand the work of the cross. It was just around the corner. But through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the teaching of the Holy Spirit, they would understand exactly what the work of the cross meant, and they would apply that backwards into the fulfillment of the Old Testament. They also didn't understand that the Messianic kingdom was not a physical kingdom, but it was a spiritual kingdom. They would eventually understand that through the indwelling and the teaching of the Holy Spirit that would come in this new era. So their understanding was about to change because of the Holy Spirit who was going to come to them, and that was going to provide for them a greater understanding of Jesus' work, His mission, His purposes, and everything that they have ever heard Him say. The veil was about to be removed, and the understanding that they lacked was about to come to them in great, with great clarity. Now, the fourth promise that Jesus makes here is significant and very, very important, and that is access to the Father. Now, thinking about this in terms of a Jew, this is humongous. Jesus says in verses 26 and 27, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, For the Father Himself loves you and have believed that I came forth from the Father. So Jesus continues to explain why their sorrow will be turned to joy. Not only will they have greater understanding, not only will they have direct access to the Father, excuse me, but they will have direct access to the Father. When Jesus says that day, it is that future day of the new era. The work of the cross is completed. Victory has been accomplished. And the Holy Spirit will have been poured out upon the disciples. And the door to the Father will be opened. All believers will have direct access to the Father through our union with Jesus Christ. This is what is called the priesthood of the believer. In the Jewish understanding, in the Jewish practice of worship, you had a mediator that you were required to go through. You had to go to a priest who would make intercession on your behalf to the Father. That was one of the significances of the temple veil being torn in tune, is that that barrier between the people and the Father had been eradicated at the cross, Believers now have direct access to the Father through our union with Jesus Christ. There's no need for a human mediator. There's no need for a priest. There's no need for a prophet. There's no need for a saint to go to the Father on our behalf. We go to the Father directly because of our union with Jesus Christ. You know, in the Catholic practice... You must go to a priest and confess your sin in order to receive absolution. Jesus is saying that's not necessary. You go directly to the Father. It's often it's also said that in the Catholic tradition that you would seek out Mary or a saint in order to make request to the Father on your behalf because the Father is harsh and unapproachable. But here Jesus is saying that is not the case. He is saying that we don't have to ask Him 
to ask the Father on our behalf, we can ask the Father ourselves in Jesus' name. Why? Because the Father loves us. I think one of the great images that we are to have of God as He has called us our children is this image of a loving, merciful Father. I have often said that when we come to God, we ought to envision ourselves climbing up into God's lap and resting our head on His shoulder and receiving from Him the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the compassion that He desires to give to us as our Heavenly Father. He loves us because we love the Son and have believed in Him. We have direct access to the Father. We don't have to ask Jesus to ask the Father for us. We ask Him directly. Now, throughout the Gospel of John, part of what John has emphasized in the teaching of Jesus is this repeated conversation about the inseparable union between the Father and the Son. Even in the discourse, Jesus has said repeatedly that to love the Father is to love the Son. To obey the Father is to obey the Son. To hate the Son is to hate the Father. To disobey the Son is to disobey the Father. And so the same thing is true here. And it's what Jesus implies that if you love the Son, then you love the Father. And because the Father has loved the Son, He loves those who love the Son as well. As the children of God who love the Lord Jesus Christ, we can know, based upon the authority of Jesus' words, that the Father loves us. Here Jesus emphatically proclaims that the Father loves them because they love the Son. And just as Jesus is in an inseparable union with the Father, we too are in an inseparable union with the Son. This is a very important piece for us to grasp a hold of. We have direct access to the Father through our union with Jesus Christ. Now, number five in our outline as we look at these final six verses, it's really a conclusion. It is in many senses a restatement of several things that Jesus has already said. It provides a formal conclusion to the farewell discourse which began all the way back in John 13:31 it is the end of the teaching if you will and it will then transition into the great priestly prayer that Jesus prays on behalf of his followers so the first thing that we see in this conclusion is a summary of Jesus's mission look at what he says here in verse 28 as we see this as the conclusion to the farewell discourse a conclusion to the disciples' teaching prior to His crucifixion and before His resurrection appearances. He says in verse 28, I came forth from the Father, and I have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. He came from the Father, speaking of His divine origin. He came into the world, speaking of His miraculous incarnation, he is leaving the world and will do so through the cross and the empty tomb. He is going back to the Father 
after completing His divine mission. This departure that Jesus is speaking of is the dominant theme of the discourse. Verse 28 is a very simple statement. It's a very clear pronouncement of the Gospel message. And it elicits a response from the disciples. This is only the second time now that John has chosen to record the words of the disciples, either because they haven't been speaking or anything that they might have said was inconsequential to what is being said throughout the discourse. But in this response that we see from the disciples, we see that there is confirmation, but there's also misunderstanding. Verses 29 and 30. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. D.A. Carson, who is a commentator, an author who has written a commentary on the Gospel of John, says this. He says, quote, No misunderstanding is more pathetic than that which thinks it no longer exists. No misunderstanding is more pathetic than that which thinks it no longer exists. The disciples think they have this aha moment where the light bulb has turned on and now all of a sudden they understand what Jesus is saying to them. Jesus has said very, very plainly that He is leaving to go back to the Father. If you were to go back through the discourse and count the number of times that Jesus has said this, it would be at least four, if not five or six. He has said this over and over and over. And for some reason, this statement here is now plain speech for them, no longer cryptic, no longer enigmatic, no longer veiled, but they don't really and truly understand what it means. They think they do, but they don't. They misunderstand the cross. Never in the wildest imagination would they envision that in less than 12 hours, or around 12 hours, Jesus is going to be hanging on the cross, breathing His last breath. He's about to be arrested and tried and crucified, and they have no idea that Jesus' journey back to the Father is going to go through the cross. So they misunderstand what Jesus is saying, it's really not as clear to them as they think it is. And even in the midst of that, they do make a positive confirmation. They confirm Jesus' knowledge. They say, we know, you know all things, and have, no one has no need for, there's no need for anyone to question you. This is based upon not Jesus' omniscience, but the fact that they believe that Jesus knows all things about the Father, and that Jesus has disclosed the Father to them. They've heard all that Jesus has taught, and while they haven't understood it all, they can affirm that they believe that Jesus is speaking eternal truth. After all, they said, we believe that you speak the words of life. So they confirm that He, is, that he has revealed the Father to Him. They've heard Him successfully debate 
the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and all those that have questioned his actions or his motives, what they have seen in Jesus confirms in their minds that he has come from the Father. They confirm that he has come from God, but they clearly misunderstand what it means that he is going back to the Father. So they misunderstand even though they have confirmation of divine truth about the person of Jesus Christ. And so in the face of this proclamation that the disciples make, we see that Jesus issues a challenge to them in verse 31. Do you now believe? Jesus knows that their confident faith that's being expressed is in fact weak and incomplete. His response here in the Greek communicates that it is a mild rebuke that what they profess isn't as settled in their hearts as they think it is. Now, if you remember, Jesus has already told Peter specifically that he would deny him three times before Peter would hear the rooster crow. Peter professed to have great faith that he would stand with Jesus to the death even if he stood alone. And Jesus said, well, that's not really true. Your faith is weak and it's incomplete. And that is the exact same thing that Jesus is saying to them here even though they believe that Jesus all of a sudden is speaking very plainly and very, very clearly to them. And so this leads us to the prediction that Jesus makes to them. Verse 32, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. So Jesus' prediction, first of all, is a scattering. In the hours after his arrest, each one of them will abandon Jesus. They will do so in an effort to protect themselves. If Jesus, the one they believe to be the Messiah, could be arrested by the Pharisees and could be put on trial, what on earth would happen to them? What is going to happen to me if I stick around and see this thing through? So they are all going to scatter, each to his own home, and Jesus says, you are going to abandon me and you are going to leave me alone. Now they will see him die on the cross. Certainly there will be wondering sorrowfully at this thing that has happened. They will leave Jesus. But Jesus says here, he won't truly be alone because the Father is with him. The Father's faithfulness to Jesus is a contrast to the fickle faith of the disciples. Now it is said that on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so there is this sense in which Jesus has become the sin of the world, and God cannot look on sin, and so Jesus feels in his humanity as if he has been abandoned by the Father, but in reality, he hasn't. The Father is always faithful to the Son, even though it would feel that way to Jesus in the depth of his pain 
and the reality of His becoming the atonement for the sin of the world. And yet Jesus affirms here that the Father is always going to be with Him. So the Father's faithfulness here is a contrast to the faith that the disciples are professing to have in Jesus, which is really weak and incomplete, and so they are going to scatter. But the scattering is not going to be permanent. Jesus also predicts that there is going to be a restoration. Verse 33, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. And the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Now these things that Jesus is referring to here is the entirety of the discourse. It's not these things that Jesus has just said in the last three or four verses that we've looked at, but everything that Jesus has said to them in this discourse. In the face of His departure, the Helper is going to come to them. He is going to empower them. He's going to empower them to love Jesus and to obey Him, to remain faithful to Him, to be able to withstand the world's hostility, to enable them to bear fruit in God's kingdom, to enable them to love one another, and in the face of great hardship, and even in the face of very severe persecution, the Helper will be there to bring them peace. Jesus says, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So there's two spheres of existence that Jesus is referencing here in this verse that are constantly at odds with one another. And as Christians, we belong to both of these spheres. We belong to Christ and we belong to the world. In this world, Christians will face tribulation and difficulty and hardship and yes, even persecution. But we also belong to Christ and it is in Him that we can have peace, peace in the face of sorrow, peace in the face of hardship, and peace in the face of persecution. And for these disciples, even in the face of death, why can they have this peace? Because Jesus has overcome the world. Overcoming here is synonymous with victory. It's victory over sin, it's victory over death, and it's victory over the ruler of this world, Satan himself. These men who possess an incomplete and weak faith, would be radically transformed in this new era that is about to come on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit will be poured forth and will indwell them. They will stand against the Jewish persecution. They will stand against the Roman jailers. And they will boldly proclaim the Gospel message. To be sure, the sorrow of the cross will be turned to joy as they saw the promises and purposes of God worked out through their lives. There is going to be a scattering, but there is also going to be a restoration that is going to come to them as the Holy Spirit indwells them and leads them and guides them into all truth and empowers them to be all that God has designed for them to be and to complete the purposes that God has has ordained for them to carry out in their lives. There is this promise that we can have great joy in the face of sorrow, and the only way that you and I will ever experience that joy in our lives is if we cling to and if we rest in our union with Jesus Christ.
We can't just hope for the removal of circumstances. We can't just depend upon the elimination or the weakening of persecution. We must remain firmly attached to the vine as a branch because He is the source of our life. He is the source of our strength. He is the source of our peace. And He is the source of our joy. When you and I face hardship and difficulty and sorrow in this world, we are going to turn to something. The question is, what are we going to turn to? If we turn to Him, if we cling to Him, if He becomes the anchor of our soul, then undoubtedly we will experience this transformation from sorrow to joy as we see the presence of Christ in us and as we see the work of God completed in us. Would you pray with me, please? Well, Father, we think about this spiritual result that comes from a lifetime of spiritual discipline as we give ourselves to You and to the truth of Your Word and as we face hardship and unwelcome circumstances in our lives and in this world we ought to find the joy and the peace that you promised to us in our union with you. God, we know that we possess sometimes a very weak faith and oftentimes an incomplete faith. And so we pray that you would continually draw us back to your word where we would find the truth of who you are, the absolute truth that will never change, and that we would be reminded of who you are, that we would be reminded of the victory that is ours through you and that we would give ourselves to you anew, finding the peace and the joy that you provide. We thank you that you have sent to us the help of the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us, to seal us, to direct us, to empower us, to encourage us. i got to pray that we would always remember, always be reminded of his presence in us so that we would live above and beyond our circumstances and find victory in what seems to be an unwinnable position in life and find the victory that is ours in Christ as we fix our eyes on You, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, would You take all that we have to offer You, would You bless it and multiply it and make something great come from it, as we seek to love you and obey you, as we seek to live a life that's committed to building your kingdom in this world. We pray that your faithfulness would provide for us all that we need as we face challenge in this world. And we give you thanks for who you are and what you've done. And pray that you would find us to be increasingly faithful to you all the days of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name.